0: My first job out of university was with a company that specialized in innovation. And it was there that I really started to understand how creativity flourishes only when there are restraints. Here's an example. We were hired by Kellogg's to help do something new for Cornflakes, that iconic brand. But we weren't allowed to change the product. And we weren't allowed to change the packaging. And we weren't allowed to change the marketing. There is nothing else. So I can't quite remember what we did invent, but I do remember realizing I needed to figure out the rules so I could decide what rules needed to be broken. We got really into the the gritty nitty-gritty around what is up for negotiation. Now, I know you're not inventing cornflakes, but whatever your situation, there's actually liberation in understanding what rules need to be followed. And so often, those rules are fewer than you realize. And what rules can be twisted and inverted and played with? I'm wondering, how might you more joyfully break a few rules? Hey, welcome to Two Pages with MBS. It's the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that's moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, most of my guests on this podcast are authors but not many of them, in fact, so far, none of them are the best-selling author in their home country. Now, Iceland is a country where reading is still held to be a a precious thing. In fact, every Christmas Eve, there's a tradition. It translates as the Christmas book flood, where books are giving out in that evening and the the night before Christmas is spent reading. I I love that. Andrei Snir Magnusson is one of Iceland's best-selling and most prolific authors. He's written across almost every genre, including film. And of course, he's quite self-deprecating about his success.
1: I've never had a proper job, so I've been writing for, for more than 25 years. What year is it now? Yeah, 27 years since my first book came out, actually.
0: Now, as an author, <laughs> I might disagree with that. I think it is a proper job. I'm trying to make it a proper job for me. Now, one of Andre's first books was a book of poetry and it was based in a supermarket. So you can probably guess how well that went down.
1: It was actually a bestseller, so I I never needed to take any loans for my university studies. I I bought an apartment for poetry profit, (laughs) so I can't claim any struggling. That
0: is a great and unexpected success story. Now, despite being a writer for close to three decades, this writer's life isn't where André originally saw himself.
1: There was one thing that I promised when I was a kid that I would, I would never work indoors. (laughs) I was like a fervent skier and, uh, and had like an outdoor job gardening. And so I was like, I'm never going to be indoors.
0: André's life is one of reinvention. Uh, That's why I introduced this whole interview talking about cornflakes. He's not, he's not a, a big brand cereal, of course. He's more like Proteus changing shape and format and genre.
1: So my first book was poetry based in an Icelandic supermarket, mm. consumer poetry. And uh, and then my next book was a children's book. Right. And, and then I did sci-fi, Love Star, which uh, children can't understand and is right. full of stuff that is not for children. And then I did nonfiction. And so it's both, uh, as an author, you're shaped by your society mm. and you're shaped maybe by the books that you read Mm-hmm. So, so, my great inspirations were poetry and they were mm-hmm. children's books, and they were like Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. And, and maybe like Kurt Vonnegut, he would both maybe do some children's material, and lots of his most beautiful writing is nonfiction. Yes. And, and then it's science fiction and also Orwell. Mm-hmm. Like he would make an Animal Farm, which would be like a children's parable. Right. But then 1984, but then he would also do Coming Up for Air. That's right and I, and I think you're maybe shaped by the authors that uh, mm. you maybe admire during a certain age and I think it's also just one thing to maybe escape comparison to your older self right so uh, and, and then many artists in Iceland uh, that I admired the most have actually done exactly this so they're very good at something maybe some of the poets of the 20th century like had mastered the rhyme or the mm-hmm. the, the verse like, and become like a national poet. But then that right to just slashed it and become like a, <laughs> a, a modernist, like completely right. betrayed his audience and his expectations. And, and I thought uh, as an artist, you always have to kind of push your limits and try to reach out of your comfort zone.
0: Right. I'm wondering whether you, whether you find your topic and then find a, a, a form to fit the topic or whether you find a form... And then
1: find what will fill that form. It's it's hard to say. It kind of comes simultaneously. So, mm-hmm. uh, and and actually, sometimes it is the same theme filtered through sci-fi, through a children's parable, yes, and and through nonfiction. So, like uh, three of my books, they were kind of rotating about maybe similar thoughts, uh, right. similar worries, or, or similar. Things, but but then again you're very shaped by your own society so like in 2002 to 2006 Iceland was going haywire everything was going completely out of control right there were forces trying to destroy much of the highlands right. of Iceland right. we were becoming super rich uh, our banking system was expanding like it didn't last that long but <laughs> but and at that moment I was like do we really need sci-fi now? <laughs> when, mm-hmm. when basically every other businessman was having sci-fi in his own PowerPoint presentations about the future right. of his company. Right. So there, there I thought, okay, we don't need sci-fi. We need somebody just to get grips on reality. You know, what is reality? Mm. What, what, What is economy? What is... Yeah. Just basically ground ourselves. So there I had made a successful uh, sci-fi novel. But as an next book I felt, okay... I'm, I'm not going to make sci-fi, I'm, I'm going to make That's reality, but you can still write non-fiction as magic realism. Mm-hmm. That is, you can still contain poetry and magic and wonder that. within non-fiction. So it doesn't have yes. to be dry journalism.
0: No, I um, I wrote my master's thesis on magic realism. Um, okay, okay. So uh, I, I love that. You know before we had this conversation you sent me a photograph of the books you were considering and uh i know on your short list was a hundred years of solitude which is the kind of the, the definitive or the er book of uh of magic realism so i love that you're yeah. mentioning it here
1: i think those were the kind of the books of my era when i was kind of growing up mm. and the reasons why i wanted to become a writer and yeah so i guess my Pyle must have appealed to you. It, did, it, did. <laughs> it, was, it was really...
0: Probably a similar age. So I'm like, oh, yeah. I I know a lot of these books and they were, they
1: were uh, just instrumental came from Col- for me. It just, just came from Colombia where, where Marquez uh, oh, right. wrote his books.
0: So. I know, um, you know, I was dipping into one of your recent books on time and water, and you, you talk about the challenge of getting a grip on the environmental crisis and the enormity of it and you go, I have to, numbers don't do it, but perhaps stories are a way of understanding what's going on. I'm wondering if you remember the first story that showed up in your life.
1: Uh, in my entire life, but not yeah. like... Uh,
0: yeah, I'm kind of like, you know, well, what's, what's one of the very first stories that you heard and started shaping you as a, a writer and a reader and a listener?
1: I think maybe my first story, and actually one of my first memories was a was a traffic accident or like a, a car rolled over when i was i wasn't three yet i was like wow. two years and 10 months or something and we had a accident where a bronco suv or what you call it Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically bumped around and went three turns on the on a gravel road yeah. and the whole family basically uh, was tossed out of the car and uh, yeah and it's strange that that was a story that I was often telling because suddenly I had like something to say. Mm. You know, like, uh, so I had like experienced something. And, and I was trying to recall this because I have no kids and you would always expect something like this to be a trauma. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really experience it as a trauma. It was terrible, of course. you know. Yeah. I, 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 I really feel sorry for my dad when I think of it, like Thank having God. his whole family. And his pregnant wife, like, uh, you know, everybody thrown out of the car. And, and my mother broke her neck, so she could have been one one millimeter from paralyzation. But wow. everything, nobody badly hurt, but, you know, right. very close to something dramatic. Wow. And I remember this was like a story that I started to tell. And then I moved to America straight away, like I was three. And there I suddenly, suddenly could tell stories about another place. Right So, so I understood that I was from a different place, and I could tell stories about that. and a place that at that time before internet was yeah. even more exotic and many most people did not know, know that Iceland existed, right So so I kind of had to claim that I was from a place <laughs> that, that people didn't even yeah. know existed. Yeah so, so I think some of the storytelling comes from maybe some maybe experience. Mm. and then also from moving from one, one place to another right. and starting to be able to s- tell these stories and then and then actually like the stories in time and water are some of my oldest stories so so when uh, the boys in class were saying my father is stronger than your father uh, I said my grandmother is st- stronger than your father <laughs> 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 so so uh, bragging about my grandmother was uh, something of that that I started very early and actually also the other story in the book, because I recall when I lived in America, my grandfather operated on the Shah of Iran, mm. and uh, and I was in the car listening to the radio on my way to a Burger King uh, birthday yeah. party, and right. uh, I remember also that Burger King himself didn't show up, which was it? <laughs> <laughs> <It's> disappointing. <laughs> but uh, but I remember hearing like that story in the radio, like about yes. my grandfather operating on the Shah of Iran. Mm-hmm and then the uh, uprising, the Ayatollah Khomeini, no, the the taking over of the embassy four days later. So I felt like this very early connection to big events in the world. Yeah. And then his son was this crocodile uncle, Mm -hmm. uh, and he had a crocodile in his bedroom and a boa Uh constrictor in his bedroom. And that was also a story that I would tell, Uh, and the story of my grandmother on the honeymoon on the glacier. So actually, it's a good question because... (laughs) <laughs> actually <laughs> on time and water is a pile of my earliest core stories right that I wanted right. to tell at some moment uh, and, uh, and but I wasn't ever sure of what format or what channel but suddenly they all started to make sense in, in, in right. kind of the cycle of climate change that's amazing
0: and I love the I love the, the magic realist taste of those and the flavor of those <laughs> you're like I've got like a because... crocodile on a bow constrictor in my bedroom it feels very very Gabriel Garcia Marquez
1: yeah and I think that's what I felt also was that uh, not that I'm claiming that my family is is different or or more to tell about but, but I would say every child would think it was something to say if your uncle had a boa constrictor mm-hmm. in his bedroom.
0: <laughs> I would think so too. As, as a teenager
1: and a, <laughs> and a crocodile. We would get to feed him mice uh, like the, the boa constrictor and watch him wow. or her swallow it. And, uh, <laughs> and and then the boa constrictor would have a swim with us in the swimming pool. Because That's great. My, my, my grandfather was rather rich. Because uh. I think a surgeon at that time in the 70s. Right was one of the most highest paid professions before right. the stock market made, and and the internet made richer people. So surgeons and, uh, and pop stars, those were the people that had money. <laughs> hey,
0: it's Michael. I'm here from the future. You're gonna get that joke in just a minute. Look, we had a tech snafu when we were recording this. So the audio quality dips a little bit, but keep listening, the interview is brilliant. Um, and it starts, by me asking André what book he decided to read for us.
2: I selected, uh, I had uh, lots of books to select from. I, I, was, uh, <laughs> I had a big pile and uh, right. one of them was Garcia Marquez. Um, then I had something from Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, I had uh, um, a book of poems or artwork by Katie Patterson. Right. Uh, I chose this one here, this is one of my early influences.
0: Hello, Lightman, Einstein's Dreams. I have yeah. not heard of this, so I'm excited to hear more about it. How did it come into your life?
2: I think, actually, a cousin of mine was talking about it. He's like a science buff. It, it came in 1993 when I was 20. Right. He's working for Google somewhere in San Francisco. So he's like a real science nerd. Uh, yeah. and normally, he wasn't talking about books, but he was talking about this book, and and then a few other people spoke of them, and I think my father bought it for me. So, and nice. maybe when, kind of one of the books that I, I wasn't so keen on re- reading English. Right. This was maybe one of the first English books after I was rediscovering English after after living there as a kid. So uh, yeah. Einstein's Dreams is, uh, is a book about time. <laughs> so, mm. so, so maybe just an example of how you're... Output can an influence <laughs> can maybe come 30 years after the right. input, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it's a book of short stories of uh, all sorts of versions of time, right? And, and the world and worlds of time, nice. and uh, it's a very charming book, very poetic, scientific, Beautiful. philosophical, and uh, and deeply influential on uh, me as a young young writer.
0: And how did you decide what two pages to read? Because it's it's one thing to have to choose from your books, and then you have to pick the two pages that you think sum up the book in some way. So how did you select what to read?
2: Well, it also makes sense in this program because it's uh, it's almost like poetry. So it's uh, chapter is kind of a standalone, and uh, and right. each page is contains lots of ideas and beautiful. So so I could open a, a anywhere actually, and nice. uh, so I can. shall I read for you? Yes, please. So, Einstein's Dreams by Alan Leitman, 16th of April, 1905. In this world, time is like a flow of water, occasionally displaced by a bit of debris, a passing breeze. Now and then, some cosmic disturbance will cause a rivulet of time to turn away from the mainstream, to make connection backstream when this happens birds soil people caught in the branching tributary find themselves suddenly carried to the past persons who have been transported back in time are easy to identify they wear dark and distinct clothing and walk on their toes trying not to make a single sound trying not to bend a single blade of grass for they fear that any change they make in the past could have drastic consequences for the future. Just now, for example, such a person is crouching in the shadows of the arcade at number 19, Kramgasse, an old place for a traveler from the future, but there she is, an odd place for a traveler from the future, but there she is. Pedestrians pass, stare, and walk on. She huddles in the corner and quickly creeps across the street and cowers in another darkened spot at number twenty-two, she is terrified that she will kick up dust. Just as a Peter Clausen is making his way to the apothecary on Spitalgasse this afternoon of 16th April 1905, Clausen is something of a dandy and hates to have his clothes sullied. If dust messes his clothes, he will stop and painstakingly brush them off, regardless of waiting appointments. If Clausen is sufficiently delayed, he may not buy the ointment for his wife who has been complaining of leg aches for weeks. In that case, Clausen's wife, in a bad humor, may decide not to make the trip to Lake Geneva. And if she does not go to Lake Geneva on the 23rd of June 1905, she will not meet a Catherine de Epinari walking on the jetty of the East Shore and will not introduce Mademoiselle Epinari to her son, Richard. In turn, Richard and Catherine will not marry on the 17th of December 1908 will not give birth to Frederick on the 8th of July, 1912. And Frederick Clausen will not be father to Hans Clausen on the 22nd of August, 1838. And without Hans Clausen, the European Union of 1979 will never occur.
0: Yes, great.
2: So this is, uh, I thought this was, a for me, I I was in a science branch in school. Yes. And I had decided... That I was not going to take that path, so I had sacrificed my youth for learning uh, uh, all sorts of math equations and uh, <laughs> science that I was kind of regretting to have learned <laughs> without yeah. without going to use that as a profession, as an engineer or a chemist or a doctor, because I was heading for uh, literature.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: but there I saw no, maybe I didn't really waste my time, maybe, <laughs> right. maybe, and actually. Learning math, I found out, uh, and and how to make these physics equations and even the Einstein's equations helped me also in writing because it uh, teaches you. I think sometimes, like if you study history, you, you can become completely lost in nuances, like mm-hmm. uh, details and uh, uh, details and nuances, and. Uh, and, and, uh, and everything has to be so uh, bulky in, in nuances right. and details. and, uh, and uh, But, but was, science was so ruthless in just... Deciding <laughs> That's a great now, word. Now, now, uh, I'm just going to make an equation where I imagine the world is an infinitely mm-hmm. small ball in a vacuum on light speed. Yeah. And, and, and then I will, from that super simple simplicity, I will make an equation that explains the universe. Mm. And I think I learned, uh, I I would claim some of my writing to be a learning from that. That is uh, is by super stripping away all sorts of external stuff. So like my book, uh, The Story of the Blue Planet, which is a parable about wild children living on a planet, trying to explain the essence of many things. So I think I learned lots from science and math. Kind of the beauty of simplicity, which comes close to poetry, yes. also, and uh, and I have, yeah. I, I have never liked like uh, Dostoevsky or something like. That. I have never had patience to read long, bulky like stories. War and Peace, where you're yeah. like, could we
0: not? Could you just not make it a hundred pages, not a yeah. thousand pages? Yeah, these
2: endless pages of, of, you know, why didn't they just make it make a story where? You, compressed everything into an infinite ball in a vacuum <laughs> so I could finish it in light speed Yeah. and, and, just yeah. and get, get, get the <laughs> understanding. So, so both poetry and mm. uh, mythology and uh, poetry, mythology and math and, and physics kind of taught me to appreciate scarcity, simplicity and, and yeah. kind of trying not to I love that. Overstress things.
0: There's, um, there's a saying in North America. It comes from actually one of the Supreme Court justices in the States. Uh, he says, I don't care for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give anything for simplicity on the other side of complexity. <laughs> um, and I love that in that sense of, it, you know, you can't just write something that's simple. You have to write something that is elegant and resilient but has also kind of burned away the excess so that you have something essential that is left.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I feel is, is, uh, and I actually think it's in a, in a world of, that is full of material and that you should respect your reader's time. And that it, it is one of your roles mm. is to get, is not to waste his time. like, uh, like, uh like, like I was a TV yeah. series trying to keep you hanging for twelve seasons but but i I, I trust <laughs> that that my role is more like uh, trying to change your perspective in and as short, mm. but then a book is also a, is still a long form also so so like a That's book right. is something like like an article in a newspaper or a, or a Facebook status or. Or a news item of thirty seconds, mm-hmm. or two minutes, or even a long-form thing in a in a in a in a New Yorker or something. I feel like the book is still a form that can help you travel through an arts right? Uh, an arts of thought. So you can you can build up language, a world. Uh, you can build up an arts of thought, like a, yes. Like uh, almost like uh, when you you were installing a new system into your computer in the old days, like you needed like nine disks to like
0: put it in, take it out, put it in, take it
2: out, put it in, take it out,
0: yeah.
2: And I feel like a book is still a form that Ooh. that can can do this, and mm. uh, and and kind of has the space where you dwell that where you kind of dive into a person's mind. And and you can bring yes. people to places where, you know, other media just can't do.
0: andre Even... I'm, hope, I'm I'm curious to know what. I mean, the the passage you read was about time, and about you know a traveler from the future, being careful about not to change, do anything to change anything, because if you change one single thing, you know, the chaos effect, a butterfly flapping its wing sets up a, a hurricane in Brazil, as the as the metaphor went um but it also feels that um you know we are ourselves travelers from the future (laughs) and everything we do at the moment changes the future for us um i guess i'm just curious to know how you what you're hoping for in terms of how people navigate the, the present and the future because as you say even though your books are in different formats they all have a a heartbeat at the center, which is about the concern of, you know, our, our, our glaciers melting, our environment changing, the, our, our oceans becoming more acidic. What do you hope for, you think about people, people traveling forward?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I, th- I think all my books have, have been drawn to quite big themes, like uh, mm. in, in my, in my, my, uh, sci-fi novel it was love death and god <laughs> <laughs> kind, of, tick, tick, and tick, yeah. kind of kind of kind of the, the little things yeah <laughs> and and, uh, and and then in the blue planet which is basically about yeah. what it means to live on a planet and uh,
1: yeah
2: and then in time and Water, it's basically updating taking all the modern science of of where we're heading Mm. and trying to process that in, uh, emotionally in stories, trying to understand and grasp the scale of this. So the ambitions are of course almost like megalomanic and they're like very old-fashionedly sincere. That is, uh,
1: yeah.
2: they're not cynical, that is uh, in, a, in a very sincere belief that literature and stories are a tool of like in a democratic society my contribution to people's understanding and, right. and and me using my time and hopefully talent to to pro, you know my obligations or my duties or mm. to to address these things. So it was n- nothing less than updating our cultural feeling of time, <laughs> which yeah. is which is because I think our generation was raised with, with the year two thousand, almost sure. like a roof over our head. Like, yeah. like uh, and, and I think most of the people that were in uh, Glasgow if you ask them do you agree that 1970 was 30 years ago they would say yes of course <laughs> and like uh, recalculate yeah. and they would be right. like oh my god it's 50 years ago and I would right. be like yes you're born 1970 you know how old you are <laughs> but exactly. this this is bizarre this connection of, 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 of the date of time uh, our perspective uh, our body time uh, yeah. our cultural time uh, the time that we have left <laughs> uh, yeah. the impact in time uh, that we have in terms of nature as 8 billion human beings next week yeah. i think so so uh, so i think that most of our generation still thinks that when somebody says 2050 that we still in a very strange way feel like that is 50 years into the future that we have right. plenty of time to react right. to and change, while uh, interesting. and then I had uh, my. But then it's always speculative fiction. You know, how do you connect to two thousand one
0: hundred? So like
2: a good example, Blade Runner, takes place two thousand nineteen, which was like twenty years past past <laughs> the most distant future yeah. that we could imagine. That was like even stretching our.
1: Uh, yeah, you know, yeah.
2: culturally, we were also born with 1984 as
0: as a future. So, That's right.
2: So so uh, so my goal was to take like 2,100. How to how can I make that intimate? How can I make it urgent? How can I make it relevant? Mm. How can I reclaim it from dystopia and maybe yeah. science and culturally inhabit that time within writing that I call pancake sci-fi. That is because it's it's not what bullshit metaverse is created you know <laughs> and what kind of avatar you have become like you know yeah. in your cyberspace 80 years from now it is about you know who's your family who's your friend who's your neighbor who who is sharing this earth with you what species and and if you can have pancakes with your grandmother just like i was having pancakes with my grandmother and the world is relatively sane and safe and 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 we have yeah. peace with each other and other species then we have succeeded you yeah. know, then, then then that is utopia of course we will have lots of nuances so i was thinking i can't connect to 2100 but i can connect to 1920 like right. the, the time of my grandmother which is kind of the same distance into the past as, uh, in, as into, the future. into
0: the future yeah. so i
2: can in a in a in a, in a special way, I can just warp my grandmother <laughs> over the axis of, of this year right. into the future. And then I found my, uh, my granddaughter, which will be a mirror image maybe of my grandmother. Right. And right. Uh, instead of writing about some kind of cyborg metaverse granddaughter in a flying car, you know, I, right, I, just, right. I, I just wanted to make a, she'll so just be a human that will hopefully be loved, and will love somebody, and the people she will love the most, they will still be alive in the year 2170, maybe. And if you ask my grandmother, are 100 years a long time or a short time, she will tell me it's a short time. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, uh, I feel like, uh, you know, the 1940s were yesterday. You know? Yes. So, so, in a very bizarre way, how we perceive time, the lived time or the unlived time uh, is, is from feels like eternity and irrelevant to being like mm. a to being like a flash
0: right right they're both true at the same time yeah um and this has been such a wonderful conversation thank you um is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between us
2: mm. Well, you know, I'm like Castro. I can talk for three hours. <laughs> so, no, I wish I had three hours. Yeah, I, I, I think we we've covered quite a lot. So, and you you yeah. pulled out some some new stories and, uh, Thank you. And, uh...
0: This conversation for me was about resistance, the resistance, the underground resistance, like in World War Two. So first of all, resistance to your own tired, predictable story about yourself and connected resistance to what the world's story about you might be. I mean, I loved it when Andre said, as an artist, you always have to kind of push your limits and try to reach out of your comfort zone, do something that you don't really know how to do. And I think really that we're all artists. I'm always curious about the gap between the person I am today and the next best future version of me. I mean, on the one hand, I still feel like the person I was 30 years ago. I mean, I move a little slower, but it feels a continuous thing. I'm still that person. But, you know, on the other hand, I know that I'm not. I've left versions of myself behind. I mean, it's one thing, and actually, honestly, not a very interesting thing to be thinking about how to innovate cornflakes but it's a far more fascinating thing to embrace, to wrestle with how you're innovating around yourself. If you enjoyed the conversation, I don't have other Icelandic authors yet that I can point to as part of two pages with MBS, but I've got a couple of interviews to suggest with you. One is Jenny Valentish, who that episode's called How to Reinvent Yourself. And she does that. She actually goes out and goes this is how i'm exploring something that's on the edge of society really and who she is as a way of better knowing who she is today and also my interview with aj jacobs um he is a guy who always takes it to 11 i mean he literally wrote a book called how to live biblically where he literally lived for a year following literally the bible it's a great read he's very funny as well For more on Andre, you can look at his website, andremagnuson.com. I'll spell that for you. It's in the show notes, but I'll spell it for you. A-N-D-R-I-M-A-G-N-A-S-O-N.com. And I think that just leads me to say thank you for the the reviews you're leaving. I appreciate that. If you haven't done that yet, that would be a very kind gift to me. A, a nice comment, a few stars, that all helps the algorithms, the famous algorithms, figure out that we're a, a podcast worth listening to. And if you like this interview in particular, perhaps there's somebody in your life who you could re- uh, reference it to. Um, the best way podcasts grow is by word of mouth, no doubt. Thank you. You're awesome. And you're doing great.